Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Me? Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to the lock-in, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. Locked in with us today is Hilary McGrady, who's the Director General of the National Trust. This sounds an agreeable enough post. Lots of splendid big houses to look after, along with beautiful countryside and accountable only to the organisation's millions of members. A bit like being a national fairy godmother, except that it's been taking a lot of incoming flack for the last year or so. Lockdown has meant it's only got a fraction of its normal number of visitors. It's in the red. It's been accused of perpetuating one of the most damaging assaults on art historical expertise ever seen in the UK by one art critic as it reorganises itself and it's outraged much of its membership by investigating the links between places in its care and slavery. What are you trying to do, Hilary McGrady? Very interesting when you listen to that intro, Jeremy. Um, I guess, well, I'll come to what I was trying to do before COVID happened, but since a lot of what you've just talked about relates to this last year, what I am absolutely 100% focused on is making sure that not only the National Trust survives this, and there was a moment, there was definitely a moment where I was wondering if I was going to be the Director General that would see the demise of the National Trust. Um, but I want to, I am now confident that we will not only survive this, but we will thrive uh, uh, at the outcome. Um, but that has taken up my every waking hour, actually. And so the, the things that you've just referred to have absolutely been challenging, enormously challenging, but, but they do not compare to the priority that I had to put on making sure that the organisation was financially sustainable, that I was able to maintain as many of the brilliant staff that uh, I currently have, and that we will come out of this in a shape that will mean that the millions of people who have actually still been able to enjoy our open spaces um, and have taken great sucker actually during this awful year, 
that they can continue to enjoy the places that we look after and that they can engage in the history that actually is so important in this country. So so that was my priority, but I'm, I'm really happy to take questions on. How big a hole are you in? Well, because of all sorts of things, way back in April, we estimated that we thought the we would lose in and around, and at the time I said 200 million this year. And that was on the back of having to close, obviously, so all our shops, our cafes and so on. Um, uh, and also in terms of knowing what the impact would be on our membership, that we, we would lose in and around 200. It's actually turned out to be slightly more than that. But because of, A, the support, primarily the support from government through furlough and through the various um, schemes that they put in place, also our own decision to make uh, really very significant cuts to our staff. So we had to lose about um, 1,500 of our staff and that accounted for about 60 million. We had to find another 40 million uh, in terms of uh, just cost cutting. So I am, we're not in a hole. I'm in fact, because of those, all of those things, government support and our own good, I think, and sound decisions, we are gonna be all right. Um, and at the end of this, I intend to come out, yes, a bit smaller, but we're going to come out fighting, actually. And we're going to come out in a place where we can help more people recover uh, from from this terrible year. How many visitors are you down this year? Well, I mean, we are running at about, it's about 30% of our normal visits at the moment and don't forget that's only because of restrictions obviously that's only to um our outdoor sites our, our houses are still closed and will be until the middle of may we've had to introduce a booking system um to ensure that we retained all the social distancing and everything that went with the, the regulations so we're running at about 30 percent at the moment but that what that doesn't count for those are the people that would normally come to what we would call our pay for entry places what that doesn't account for is the, and I meant millions of people who are walking our coastlines, walking our mountains, um, walking along the, the, the amazing countryside. Uh, that we can't count. Uh, but of course, we don't derive an income from that. What we do is care for it and make sure that people can continue to access it. And, and thankfully, they have. Just as a matter of interest, those boxes that you have on bits of coastline and up in the hills, do you get much money out of them? No, <laughs> no, people think you do, but no, you don't. I mean, they are there primarily to remind people that we are a charity and that we do need support. And these places don't come free. People think the countryside's free and it really isn't. So all the, the paths that are maintained, the styles that are looked after, the signage that keeps you safe, all of those things take time. Uh, they take people, they take effort, they take money. We derive the vast majority of our income through um, membership, massively important to us um, and giving people giving us money which I have to say in a year that's been so challenging for so many people loads of people have supported us through online giving uh, and just sending in donations um, so your point about we've lost loads of members you know on the back of things like our slavery report actually I'm really proud that our membership base has held up as well as it has. Well there have been a lot of complaints from members there, there has. Um, you, you always have to put this in context. Um, we have over 5 million uh, members and we had, I think, I can't actually remember the exact number, but it was in and around 500 letters off. Everything from, you know, outraged complaint through to 
I'm really not sure I understand what's going on here. Could you help me? Um, and so that is a sizable number. Anybody that has an issue with trust, I take seriously. Um, but I need to put it in context um, that out of, you know, well over five million, we were we were one week off six million members before COVID hit, uh, which uh, is a matter of <laughs> deep regret for me that we didn't quite get there. Um, and so not surprisingly, we have lost members, mostly because we haven't been able to recruit you know, we haven't been open. So we always lose members for all sorts of different reasons, but we always can recruit more than we lose. But because we haven't been open, we have uh, we've struggled to recruit. Although thankfully in the last month, uh, recruitment has started to grow again, which is a huge relief to me. These complaints were mainly about the slavery campaign, were they? Yeah, that particular, I had two batches. Um, I don't particularly want to invoke either of them again, but I had two batches. The first uh, was in response to the redundancy programme. And we did have a small but very vocal group who were very concerned that we had in some way um, pulled apart our conservation, particularly our house conservation team. As it happens, we had to, um, from a financial point of view, we had to make redundancies and all parts of the organisation had to take some element of uh, cut. Uh, we tried as far as we could to ring fence uh, our curatorial teams and they were significantly um, less impacted than most other parts of the organisation. We, you know, we took, I think, something like 30% away from marketing, for example, whereas curatorial was about 9%. Nonetheless, people in the curatorial community were, and I can understand, really concerned that we had um, done something, you know, terminal to our uh, curatorial team. I genuinely don't think we have. I, I regret losing anybody. That was never my intention. Um, so any loss of staff or volunteers for that matter is a matter of regret for me. But what we did do was try to make sure that we retained expertise where we needed it most. And so our really big, important houses, treasure houses, we, we've actually increased the level of curatorial support they'll get. And we have looked to make sure that our smaller houses um, and and less important collections will also get cared for through a, a, a different structure. How many jobs are you going to lose? It'll be just over 1,500 once it's all sort of washed through, uh, which which out of a workforce at, that, at the start of COVID, we had over 12,000 um, full-time equivalent staff. So we'll have lost about 1,500 out of that, which is a, which is a big old drop. Um, but having said that, it feels massive. And certainly if you were on, on the receiving end of it, um, very, very, very painful. Uh, but it takes us back to about our levels of 2018, 17, 18. We went through a really rapid growth over the last two or three years. So, you know, we are still a very big force for good in um, the cultural sector. And and as I say, I'm, I'm very confident now, not only are we, you know, going to be OK financially, uh, assuming, I should say, uh, assuming that we continue on the trajectory that we're all all on at the moment, um, I, I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll be OK at the end of this. But when you hear people like Grosvenor Bender, I mean, it's a, it's a serious chap, isn't it? Uh, or Stephen Bailey or whatever, talking about the damage that you're doing to curatorial resources. What do you think? Well, I mean, I've spoken to Bender a number of times. You know, Bender, I, a, I regard him and, and absolutely respect the work that he does. I, in both of my conversations, I think he did acknowledge the reasons why we were making the changes we were making. And he also understood 
that we were absolutely trying to make sure that we retained expertise where we needed it most and in fact have, as I said, gone to, to lengths to make sure that the places that need the most care are getting actually additional support instead of less. So completely within the rights to hold us to account, we're a big old organisation that, you know, are you know, very well understood in the curatorial world. I, you know, I would always say judge us by our actions, not by our words. So if you go, we have in the last five years, we've spent more on conservation and more on our houses than we ever have before. Um, and I have every intention of maintaining that sort of support um, particularly on our collections over the next number of years. So, you know, when you go to our houses, I would challenge you to to say that you can see that we've, you know, done something dreadful and that our houses are less well looked after. They'll, they'll not be. That is absolutely my commitment. Why did you bother with the slavery investigation? Well, we're a serious heritage organisation. And since the day we were formed, we have investigated the history of our properties. That's what we do. And I'm very pleased to say that the Charity Commission did actually finally acknowledge that, uh, what, two weeks ago, that to research our history was entirely valid. Good. Tick. So what we wanted to do and will always do is make sure that we tell all of our history, not just the bits that we feel comfortable with. And, and really, this isn't new. Um, we started to look into our connections with slavery way back in 2007. Um, with the abolition of, uh, sorry, with the anniversary of abolition of slavery, we started that process. Um, it was centred around Penryn in Wales at the time, but since then we've been doing lots of research into this, usually property by property. And what we had concluded in two thousand and seventeen was what we lacked was a was an organisational view. So an individual property view, but not from an organisation. So we commissioned this report to try to get a global view across all of our properties as to what the connections were. So this was well before Black Lives Matter, well before COVID and has long you know, for a long time been in the burn. I should say it sat alongside research into World War One. It sat along research into connections with suffrage and all of these other subjects equally being looked into. Now, this one is a motive. I absolutely recognise it. It's a motive, but it's important to state that we did it as part of a long-term research ambition to make sure that we tell all of the stories about all of our properties. And, you know, the, the idea that it was some sort of politically motivated thing was just nonsense, frankly. But nobody believes that this country has got clean hands when it comes to slavery. We don't. We do have clean hands with the suppression of slavery, but we don't have clean hands with slavery itself. Why hadn't anyone looked into this before in the National Trust? Yeah, no, that's a good challenge. And I've actually been pondering that one myself. You know, let's be honest, this has, we, we all know, this is a difficult subject. Just look what the Trust has been put through in the last two or three months. It's not surprising that we were a bit, you know, cautious around it. Um, and I've been thinking about it. I think it was a combination of factors that we haven't looked into this more fully. I, I, I think we come from a very conservative place ourselves as an organisation, you know, with very conservative values. I think there was an element for years about deference to our um, the families that gave us the houses. So we were definitely concerned and rightly so um, to, to, to want to work with them. And I think genuinely we were worried um, about what members would think, about what the public would think. And I suppose across all of those, um, you know, you have to mature, don't you? You have to recognise that actually it's not in the interest of anybody to try to cover up stories. Um, to cover up history 
and history should be interesting to everybody. One of the one of the things that I think has people have tried to peddle here is that we're trying to appease one minority. We're not. I'm guessing you're interested in this history. I'm interested in this history. It should be something that we should all want to to know about. And it's about adding to our understanding. Not this stupid notion of whitewashing or trying to erase history is I just don't get it because you're adding to it. You're embellishing it. Um and I think that's got to be a good thing, doesn't it? But the accusation is that you've done it because you're woke. I know. And what do I, you know, what can I say about that? Are you woke? I am not woke. What I am is interested in telling all of the history of our properties. And you know, this thing about woke is really, you know, it leaves you nowhere to go because it immediately puts you on the back foot. Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. I'm honestly not interested in that stuff. I am interested in telling really interesting stories about our properties. I want people to come and learn about their history and understand where they might be connected or not connected. Um, I think history plays a massively important part of rooting people in their communities, understanding where they came from to help inform their future, all of that good stuff. And the trust does that so brilliantly well. And you know what? What really winds me up is this idea that the public, when they come to our houses, will only get one story. What a load of nonsense. If you go to Quarry Bank Mills, a brilliant example, you know, tells an amazing story of the industrial heritage, tells an amazing story of what, you know, what some of the founding stories of Manchester. It has so much to tell um, that feels good. It also tells about child labour. It also tells about slavery. And the great British public are entirely capable of taking all of that and making sense of it. And they might even have a cup of tea and walk around the garden and enjoy that too at the same time. Why we think we have to nanny them and you know tell them you read this but you don't read that is, is just ridiculous. Um, so I, I am very confident that my members and more importantly the public at large go to these places and allow all of that to wash over them and they go with a, an overall sense of what story they have heard, not, not one particular story. Do you worry your members are getting old? No, I love the fact they're getting old because it means that they've got more time to spend at our places. That has got to be a good thing. And similarly, volunteers. People have time once they retire, and I think that's a great thing. Having said that, on volunteering in particular, um, over 30% of our volunteers are now what we would call younger people um, because they want to engage with the work. What do you call younger? <laughs> well, I'm talking more in the er range of about 25 to 30 typically um graduates coming out of uni or or just young people wanting to engage particularly around environmental issues so we're seeing the face of volunteering changing but that's you know i think that again the trust can accommodate all of that and i i think that's the joy of the trust that we've got a little bit of something for everybody really if i had to and i say this as a gray-haired man but if I had to say what is the dominant ha hair colour of visitors to National Trust properties, I would say it was grey. Yeah, no, it is. That's because you've got a bit of time, or I don't know how busy you are, Jeremy, actually. But, it, I mean, it, is, it doesn't take, you know, the brain of Britain to figure out that if you've got a bit of time, you've got time to go to visit National Trust properties. Um, I would say, at the minute, and, and it's partly because we're benefiting from the, the lovely baby boomers, um... People are retiring earlier, so they've got more time in their hands. Um, and so you're seeing actually our, our main age group at the minute is between 55 and 65. Um, so it's it's getting younger year on year, which which is an interesting shift. 
Uh, what we are finding is that older people are coming during the week, younger families are coming at the weekend. So, so people are choosing when they want to come to the trust and, and when it feels right for them. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What about this quote, which you will doubtless claim has been taken out of context from one of your internal reports, that we must flex our mansion offer to create more active, fun and useful experiences? What on earth is all that about? Yeah, yeah, fair cop. Um, every organisation has its own lingo. And when I, look, when I read that again, I, of course I can make sense of it because I understand what they're trying to say. Basically... It means we want to make sure that not every property feels the same, that we want to make sure that if you go to, I don't know, uh, what I would call a treasure house like um, Kettleston or Knoll, that you'll get a really in-depth story of the history and an amazing collection. But you might also want to go somewhere like Attingham, where the collection is less important, but the outdoors is amazing. So we're being flexible in terms of the kind of place that you might get at the, at the Trust probably 20 years ago, every trust property would have felt very similar. So that's all that means. But fair cop, I can see the language is, um, is trust speak. Ger uh, Simon Jenkins, when he was our chairman, used to give me terrible stick about trust language like that. But it was an internal document in our defence. It was an internal document that was leaked. What, you'd speak to yourself in jargon? <laughs> oh, look, they... Uh, to be honest, if you were to go to any retailer, they would talk about flexible offer. They would talk about experience. These words make sense in specific contexts. I can see completely why other people would look at it and say, what, what does that mean? You know. Do you have any sense? What about this other thing about dialing down your national cultural institution role? Yeah, so just to, it is important, actually, you're, you're quite right. I will put this report in context. Um, when COVID hit and we had to really think about what were we going to do with less money, less resource, et cetera, et cetera, how are we going to manage in that new scenario? We commissioned uh, the, the team concerned to say, well, how are we going to deal with our houses in this new context? 
and they came back it was an internal document and they were specifically asked to be provocative you know think of everything that might happen here from the worst case scenario that we've to close everything to the best uh, best case scenario that everything reopens the way it was before and everything in between and in that they put lots of different options to us you know you can do this you could do that you might you know and some of it we agreed with and a lot of it we didn't agree with that document was subsequently leaked then by someone who was put at risk through the redundancy program and it was a matter of massive regret for me because it was you know incredibly challenging at the time but that's the context so in that dialing up dialing down thing one of the thing one of the and you would need to see the whole thing one of the um proposals was that we would try to be more like some of the big you know national museums um and actually we said we're not trying to be a big national museum we do actually have the biggest collection and i would argue most important collection in the uk but we're not a big vna or a british museum so that was one of the things that we said actually we're not trying to be them what we are trying to make sure is that people get the very best experience they can in whatever way they want, depending on the property. So so that is just an example of, will we dial down trying to be this big, you know, institution, or are we more interested in that sort of local experience that you would get when you, when you go to whichever property? You mentioned a local experience. The accusation against the National Trust used always to be that everywhere turns out to look the same. Yeah. Have you, tr- have you tried to get rid of that? Yes, that's exactly that's exactly what we are trying to get rid of. The idea that every property had a blueprint and you got exactly the same thing. Frankly, I'm not sure that anybody liked that. So this thing about being flexible entirely is about allowing each property to speak for itself and you know to ha- to bring its own history and its own personality forward instead of having a national trust handprint all over it. So. Over time, that's exactly what we would like to do to to allow that local sense of property to come through more more effectively. So, how are you going to do that? We are going to be more careful around which properties we treat in what way. So, the big treasure houses. So, if you think of Knoll, if you think of Hardwick, um, places like Chartwell, these really big iconic sites. Um, we're putting in uh, curators, individual curators. They didn't have their own curator before. They're going to have their own. Um, and we're going to focus on what's the most important thing for that property. So Churchill clearly is the most important aspect of Chartwell. Whereas Noel, it's actually more to do with the collection. It's also Vita's story, but it's mostly collection. So really making sure that we're pulling out the thing that's most important to that property and not trying to identicate all of them to the same standard. And there may be some properties that, you know, we do a lot less on the collection, but we do a lot more on um, programming there or outdoor offer, for example, something like that. So we're just being much more specific about the place and how we make that place come to life. How enthusiastic are they going to be allowed to be? Um, well, as ever with the trust, we, I am we always are mindful that we we still do operate as an overall organization so we are clear in terms of where are the red lines where would we not want you to you know to get too too far ahead of yourself you still have to stay true to the spirit of the the place to the history of the place and to the characters involved so you know uh, i would say we are careful uh, and respectful of the history at, at all properties but we do want the personality of the places to come through and that's what volunteers would tell us they want that's what local people would say they want as well 
Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that what what sells me on a place is when you hear someone describing, and you'll never guess what happened over here, that sort of thing. Exactly, that's exactly right. And it's those little stories that really bring it to... I mean, if most of us have been bored senseless being dragged around historic houses and there's another painting and another painting and another painting, and it's it means nothing. But actually, those stories of such and such a person did this and actually that meant that, you know, so they married whatever... That that starts to help you really understand wh- why this property is here, how it came around, where the connections were to all the other houses around the country. Yeah, so so that's exactly what we're trying to do. We'll not do it overnight, by the way. Uh, these things take a bit of time and research, uh, and that is partly why. Just to go back to the slavery thing, we have to continue to research um, into all of these sort of hidden areas that we haven't before, and and that is why I was relieved with the charity commission's final report. Yeah, let me ask you a little about that. Hanbury Strategy, why have you hired them? So we obviously did find ourselves in a bit of a pickle, didn't we? And that was October. I was getting it, you know, I was getting brickbats left, right and centre for all sorts of things. And in particular, the Conservative Party were absolutely outraged with us, let's be honest. Or, sorry, I should say, a number of the Conservative Party were definitely outraged. And... You know, I'm a big believer in, you know, if you're hitting your head against a, a wall and it starts to hurt, you should stop. Um, and so I, we stopped and thought we need, we need to really think carefully here about how we're building the relationships. I, I mean, if I had my time again, the slavery report, absolutely the right thing to do. Absolutely um, the right commission. Timing wise, not brilliant in the middle of trying to deal with COVID and everything else. Uh, but it was already in commission. It had already been written. The people involved knew that it had been written. You know, there was massive pressure to get it out. Uh, I wasn't focused on that. I was focused on the COVID stuff. So we we brought Hanbury on to simply help us work through that maze um, that, I, that we were dealing with at the time and, and to stop hitting myself against a wall, frankly. Do you accept you made mistakes? I, my biggest mistake was publishing it when we did because it got conflated with Black Lives Matter. That was the first thing. And it also, my organisation and I personally didn't have the bandwidth to, to do it well. So in any normal circumstances, you know, had I been publishing a report like that, I would have spent weeks talking to stakeholders to prepare them for it. I would have, you know, I would have been doing loads of work around it that I just didn't have the bandwidth to do. Um, it it was entirely the right thing to do to uh, commission this research and it's entirely the right thing to do to tell this history at our properties. And entirely the right thing to do to include Wordsworth's home? So, to see again, it's really interesting. This report was commissioned to help us as a baseline bit of research to help us understand where the connections were. So stage one, where is the connection? Stage two is, all right, we've established a connection. Now we'll go on, and if it's anything worth, you know, if there's any depth and merit to it, we'll then take that to the next stage. Some of the connections were so tangential that we won't follow them up. Some of them were, that's interesting. We might add it into the guidebook, but on we go. Some of them, actually, the, you know, the connection to slavery is so fundamental to this property that we will do more on it. So Durham is a good example of that. Um, I'm trying to think, Penryn is obviously a really good example of that. There's not that many, actually, of that category. So the mention of Wordsworth was purely, there's a connection. There is. 
not mostly because they were actually um, abolitionists. So in that report, we talk about abolitionists as well. It was purely about, is there a connection? The press, of course, wanted to make it out to be, this is some big flag-waving thing that you're going to be slapped around the face every time you come into a property, and that's simply not the case. The information will be, once we research it further, embedded into you know the guidebooks if necessary, the the um volunteers will be, you know will be briefed as to what the connections are it'll be very gentle and only if you want to find out by the way um and only if you want to uh, uh understand more yourself as a visitor how much is it costing you to hire hanbury strategy <sighs> i don't know i actually genuinely don't know um, it's not a huge amount of money in marketing terms. It's not a huge amount of money, and actually, we're not. They were only hired for a short period of time. We've actually finished the contract with them now. It's really normal for an organisation like us to work with um, PR agencies, and they're they're slightly different to strategy agency. It's entirely normal for an organisation like, like ours to do that, uh, and it was for a very defined and short space of time. And you know, it is worth remembering the National Trust reputation is hugely important to us and from a financial point of view in, incredibly important to us so it's a good investment as far as I'm concerned to ensure that my reputation is protected um, as much as is important to ensure that a collection is looked after. But the trust has to be like Caesar's wife doesn't it? Has to be above suspicion. Indeed and I you know we work really hard to be transparent. I, I've always maintained I'm really happy to take and answer any questions. We're an independent charity, um, and that means that people need to know what we're spending our money on. I've always been open and honest about that, um, and I have no difficulty, and I'm, I'm happy to defend any of our spend. Do you feel it's an old-fashioned organisation? No, I do not. I think we're in... T- we couldn't be more contemporary. Can you think of an organisation better suited to what our nation needs of us right now? We've just come through this unholy, hideous year. And the National Trust has been able to provide a public benefit, I think, like virtually no, no other. I mean, obviously, NHS is way out ahead of us and potentially the BBC. But we've been here for when the nation has needed us most. People, something, I, th- I looked at statistics yesterday, something, there's been a rise of about 50% in the number of people accessing the outdoors during COVID that never did before. Um, you know, and actually, yeah, I think the other really interesting thing out of this is this sense of desire to, to reroute yourself, to understand your community, to feel part of something. And, and I think the trust does that incredibly well. Um, again, this point about history, we... We're living through history at the moment. We're creating history. And the, and the trust allows you the opportunity to root yourself back into what is your part in this community? How, you know, did you have a connection with our properties? Perhaps your parents' family um, worked there. Perhaps there's some other connection. Maybe you've, you've got some lineage to the, the family that owned it. The trust plays a massive part in helping people understand how they got to be the place they're in. Um, and I, I think our relevance has never been more um, vital than it is right now. And I feel really proud of that, actually, which is why I'm actually very confident that at the end of this, we will actually bounce back. And I'm absolutely convinced of it. I'm going to build on that, um, the numbers of people coming into the outdoors. Yeah, it, it comes with its challenges. Um, and if I had a ranger beside me now, they'd be saying, well, our, you know, our paths are getting trashed and there's people, there are people leaving litter all over the place. 
I still embrace all that because ultimately they're getting out into the outdoors. They're thinking, actually, this is worth caring for. And maybe, just maybe, I'll do something to help. Maybe I'll litter pick or maybe I'll, you know, be part of a bird count or maybe I'll volunteer for the National Trust or the Wildlife Trust or whoever. So I think, I think we have a lot to play for. You know, the principle of this podcast was originally when we first dreamed it up was that we like going to the pub and being locked in with somebody. Now, you've got lots of pubs. Which one would you choose? Oh, look, no, I am biased here. I, where, where else could I say other than the Crown Bar in Belfast? There couldn't be a better one. Well, I, I've, got, I've got pissed in there already. <laughs> oh, you and me both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, what a brilliant bar. Just fabulous. But we, you're right, we have bars all over the place. There's a great one, actually, uh, called Stickle Barn in the Lake District, which is also just gorgeous. We have, we have loads of them all over the place. They're lovely. Well, I'm very grateful to you for sparing the time to talk to us. Thanks a lot. I could talk for hours. And if you're over in Belfast, Jeremy, I'll meet you in the Crown. We can definitely have a pint of Guinness there. That'd be good fun. We'll do that. Well, there you are. Hilary McGrady, the Director General of the National Trust. Come to think of it, I forgot to ask her about being the supremo presiding over the largest output of scones and jam anywhere in the country. Next week, we've got Jake Fines, yet another distinguished member of the Fines clan, and no less accomplished in his own line of work, which happens to be the conservation and restoration of wild habitats, specifically on the Holcomb estate in Norfolk. He's a man who knows his warblers from his robins, and we had a lovely chat about birdsong, birds, hedges, the important things in life. Do join us for that, and in the meantime, keep buggering on.